Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Bridge Podcast. I think we're up to episode 14 already, which is incredible. So just while I can, a big thank you to everyone who's been willing to come in and take part uh, in the Bridge Podcast. I know it's well listened to and people are encouraged, so that's really good news. Today, I'm really made up that I'm joined by Mr. David Kidd. Hi Dave. Hi, yeah. You all right? I'm good, thank you. Good to see you, man. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for coming in. Really appreciate it. It's a bit of a bit of a grim day, isn't it? Yeah, it is unpleasant, and I think we're due for nicer weather towards the end of the week. That's okay. But can I just say, I've been a big fan, <laughs> just listening to all the different podcasts over the week. It's been profound and really insightful, but also full of all the right things, joy and love and compassion and honesty, and it's been brilliant. So thank you for your part in that. I know you're not looking for praise, but, no. but, but thank you. That's all right. Thanks, mate. Appreciate that. So... A lot of people listening will probably know who you are. Maybe lots of people in the world, in our global podcast, won't know who you are. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what life has been like in lockdown? That's the one thing we've kind of been asking everyone. Yeah. So how's it been for you? Um, I think like everybody, it's been um, good and bad. It's been you know profound at times. So you're thinking, wow, the world's completely changed. And at other times you're thinking, this is really boring. <laughs> Uh, it has been different for me, I suppose, because um, I work here at Bridge Chapel, but the centre, which is the community centre, which is open during the week, and it's a really busy job normally, and my life is completely like owned by that a lot of the time. Uh, but I live facing here, and my parents live with me, and they're very, very elderly, and they're known to people at Bridge. Uh, Mum's 84 and Dad's 81, and Dad in particular has struggled with his health for about 15 years, and so they're both shielding uh, immediately when this happened. But uh, dad is bed bound with a, a brain injury following a stroke. So he needs round the clock care. And we have carers who come in and do that. But the minute this all happened, um, I knew I had to kind of be shielding with them because I couldn't be like drifting everywhere, then going home and putting them at risk. So um, I worked from home for Bridge for about four weeks. And then after the work dried up, I uh, was furloughed, so I've been furloughed since April, and uh, it's uh, it's a, it's it's been it's been precious in lots of ways because, like most people, life doesn't stop. So all mm. the anniversaries come round, and all the yeah. the dates come round, and over those months, mum and dad had the diamond wedding. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and that was amazing because yeah. everyone from the family and friends from church and stuff made a real effort to Did include get the them in. The queen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dad got a telegram from the queen. Of which it was a little bit lace, actually, oh, but that's it? kind of forgivable given that she's locked away in a, in a castle somewhere. Yeah, she um, might have had difficulty writing it out. Yeah, <laughs> but he was made up with that. In fact, the first night he got it, my dad, so even though he doesn't think the way that we all think and he, he does struggle with his cognition, he slept with the telegram under his pillow. Oh, <laughs> that's brilliant, isn't it? Oh. Yeah, and he, was, he actually did. He got really emotional when he saw it. Oh. And he could comprehend that he was 60 years married. Yeah, yeah. So people were coming to the window... And getting cake and getting a glass of wine. And uh, I dressed up for the day and we had a few photographs. And then <laughs> and then Bill came round the back of the flats and stuck his head through the window because we we're on a ground floor flat. And he sang to mum and dad. So <laughs> you can imagine, can't you? Yeah, Which cool. they loved. Um, and so it's been just moments like that have been precious. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's been strange days, but not all bad. Yeah, not without its challenges, though, for sure. No, the carers have been amazing. The carers come, and um, they're on really low pay, and we have eight a day come to the flat. And uh, 
a lot of them, most of them are from ethnic minority uh, backgrounds. So given the risks are higher for people, they uh, they still turned up every single day. There's not been a day or a call they've not come to. Um, they didn't have PPE at the start, so I was buying the PPE for them and giving them the masks and stuff as they came in, which they were really grateful for and I was happy to do. And it was scary because there's people that I knew who were getting sick and people mm. I knew from the centre, a couple of people lost their lives and you're like, wow, I really have to shield mum and dad here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and yet we've come through it and I've, <clears throat> like most people have been praying very hard, but yeah, it's been interesting. Yeah. Brilliant. So also in that time, something momentous happened. Oh, <laughs> how could I forget that? That's Liverpool just crazy. Yeah, you know, we're both fans, but... Yeah, you're a bit of a super fan, though. I, well, yeah, I've got a season ticket, and I've waited, and I've waited, and like we've all waited, but it's been... It's not been 30 years, it's been an eternity. It's just been <laughs> forever. And every year, I'm the eternal optimist, and every year I've gone, it's not... going to be yeah, our year. Like the cliche, isn't it? It's yeah, our year. Yeah, yeah. It's our year, we're going to do it. And last year just galled me to finish on 97 points. Yeah. And, and like win. millimetres at the Etihad from yeah. scoring and not winning. And I didn't think he'd come back from that. I thought psychologically that defeated me. So I'm thinking, how can you how can you go again after that? Yeah. I know the European Cup was a massive <coughs> consoler, <clears throat> but this year has just been. And then with the pandemic in the middle, and yet we all know life's more important, and it had to stop, and it stopped. But to be close, mm. and then it, it think this might not even happen yeah, now. And I have so many opposite fans be like kind of reveling in the yeah, null and void yeah. brigade. You're yeah, like, hang yeah. on a minute. All of it, the asterisks. Yeah, game. yeah. Well, on my social media account, I've put an asterisk by my name because I'm going to own the asterisks. <laughs> I think Klopp's done the same, hasn't he? And it's like, no. Um, and it's been, and the celebrate, I know the celebration's got a bit out of hand at times, but I think it is understandable that people wanted to just rejoice because it meant a lot. And I think this team massively deserves it and this manager mm. deserves it. So I'm getting all, I'm getting yeah, all emotional yeah. now. Because like you get excited. Talking about my club, but it's yeah. been boss. I even, we all, me, mum and dad all discussed it and were really, really sad and shipped a bit together and bought from China um, a little replica Premier League trophy. It's, it's sitting on our mantelpiece now with ribbons on. Right, it. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Brilliant. Yeah. Boss, so let's, as we do with everyone, let's like rewind, yeah. take a trip down, you know, memory lane to you growing up where you were born and brought up you know, your family situation um, and early school life, stuff like that? Well, my first memory in life, given what we've just discussed, was Anfield. I was three years old and um, the Daily Post, the morning paper in Liverpool, were looking for a, a, a young fan. Everton paper, that though. Isn't it? <laughs> is it an Everton paper? Better not be exactly, isn't it? They were looking for a young supporter to promote the FA Cup semi-final in 1974. So oh. they they chose me. And um, I went to Anfield, and this is genuinely, I'm not just saying this because I'm a red, genuinely my first uh, memory in life, being stood on the pitch at Anfield with Emlyn Hughes, who was captain at the time, and he had his arm around me, and he was telling me to put my thumb up to the camera, and I had a scarf on a bobble hat, a big rosette, uh, there's a big, big picture of it on my wall, and he signed it, best wishes, Emlyn Hughes, and he just to promote, to promote the uh, semi-final. And just off camera, my mum and my dad saying, put your thumb up, just put your thumb up. And my little brother, Mark, who was about 18 months younger than me, and he was in his romper suit and stuff, and he was screaming, crying, because he couldn't come on the photograph with me. And I was, like, made up, just like, <laughs> it's me and Emlyn. And I can hear Emlyn's voice, I can hear the high-pitched voice yeah, and everything, yeah. just being lovely with me. 
and meeting him and all of that. And the sun was out and the, the grass, even though by today's standards, it was like a wreck. The pitch was terrible. Yeah, but yeah. the greenness of it. And there was no fans there. It was the empty stadium. And then a few days later, it was in the paper. And we went on to win the FA Cup yeah, yeah. that year. Beat Newcastle in the final. That was the semi-final against Leicester. That was promoting, but we, we won the cup. So I see myself as the ultimate mascot. I was the... I was what part a, what of a memory that is. And yeah, and, and it's it's like the, the when people say, What can the first thing you can remember? That was pretty much it because it was preschool. Yeah. I didn't go to nursery, it was it was before I went to the infant school. So And where about were you living then? Uh that we were in uh, Lou Lugod Road in Egbeth. Oh, I've yeah. always until my we're currently in the flats on Heathrow, but um all my life I've lived in Egbeth. So right. Lou Lugod Road, then later on Rosemont Road and then Honiton Road, by So what, um, what junior school did you go to? Did you go to Sudley? Sudley Infants, Sudley Juniors. Yeah, were you Sudley as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And oh, Hazel, wow. yeah. I never knew yeah. that. Shout out for Sudley. Good school. Mrs. Spanning. I can remember, it, maybe you'd have left the junior school, they brought in a Sudley Juniors school song, and I oh, can yeah. remember all I the words. <laughs> I, I won't sing. Please don't sing. No, I won't sing. <laughs> but sometimes when I come back from the match with uh, people from Bridge, they always get me to sing the Sudley school as song. As you go past. <laughs> Yeah, but it was it was it was a good school, and I was I was fairly happy there too. Yeah. And and there was, I I don't know why I wasn't sent to nursery, but I suspect my mum was quite, um, keen to have her kids with her. She'd had a really rough time before I was born. She, a first daughter, Alison, died when she was three days old, oh, wow. and it was a it was their first child, mum and dad. Yeah. And uh, and mum was just they were both devastated, but mum in particular was like really bad. My dad was really really concerned about her mental state because yeah, she yeah. lost this. And it was different back then. If you if you lost a child, it wasn't like you weren't given the time with the child. It was just all done, and mm. the child was whisked away. And Brutal. Yeah, yeah. And for years after it, she was in a terrible place. And they were always warned about they probably wouldn't be able to have more children, and they they were ready to go down the adoption route. And eventually they did. They adopted you know two girls. But one day mum went to the doctors and she was um, thinking she was pregnant and she went in and the doctor went, you know, don't be silly, you, you know that's probably not going to be happening. It's a cyst. And I was the cyst. <laughs> <laughs> it was me. So I'm known in the family as the cyst. cyst like a superhero yeah. name, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Like a rubbish superhero. Yeah. Before I was David Kidd, I was the cyst. <laughs> it's the cyst. But I think that, that event in the, in the 60s kind of like you know obviously scarred me mum and I think she was keen she wouldn't send the kids to nursery it was like keep as long as she yeah, could yeah. and uh, my first taste of life outside the family unit was infant school <laughs> so my first day in Sudley was me mum this is terrible me mum had promised she wasn't going to leave me <laughs> what was it like? how can you promise a four-year-old you're not going to leave them when they're going to school and I believed there as you do because it's me mum so why would she not tell me the truth and then I remember seeing her walking away down the path. And like, oh, honestly, I can remember that feeling now of just like being like left. And I just stood in the corner of the classroom facing the wall and I wouldn't speak to anybody and just cried. I wouldn't even go for my carton of milk. Again, 
the step ups. I've always struggled with the step ups because you think there isn't a big step up between infants and juniors. For me, there was, and it was quite key. This and so I would, I think I developed later on because the big part of junior school that's different to infant school. Suddenly, was you did games mm. and you had games lessons mm. and you had your kit and stuff like that. And I was dead excited being a massive Liverpool fan um, of of playing football. So I remember my mum taking me to, so was my mum, isn't it? Taking me to Jack Sharp's in town. Oh, yeah, remember, yeah. the first pair yeah. of football boots on the Saturday before the Monday when I had games. So I was like six, seven, seven years old. Yeah. And uh, and I got them and I was really excited. And then you go, it was the last thing on a Monday, the last lesson. And it was like, you go trotting out with your kit on and stuff up to the field. Where the houses are now. Yeah. Yeah. And uh and they do what the classic of like we're going to divvy it up now into but the because the game's teacher knows the good footballers already because he's kind of sussed them out hasn't yeah. he? I think it was Mister Sermon. Oh yeah, remember him? Yeah, Sardis. yeah, with the Sardis. Yeah. He got these two lads to sort of pick the teams. Well, no. you know what happened, don't you? you I got was like, first. I was. <laughs> <laughs> oh how I wish I'd been picked first! It was like proper like laughable last, and I was crushed. Because I'd sensed I wasn't going to be good, and let's—I'm going to be brutally honest—I was awful. I was, I was shocking <laughs> for someone who loves football as much as I do. I was terrible, and that's probably one of the worst things for a lad growing up in Liverpool to be rubbish at football. Doesn't yeah. matter how much of a fan you are, if you're rubbish at football, you just plummet down Finished. the social ranks, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And I was last picked, crushed a bit anyway, and then but still think, well, someone's going to coach me. Someone's going to take the time to go, right, you're not that great, but I'm going to make you better. But that didn't happen in them days. No. You were, like, launched up to the top field, <laughs> and half the team got off to climb trees. And I'm, like, running around the pitch, trying to play football, but just being rubbish. And that went on for pretty much four, four years, <laughs> just aching for someone to sort of take me under their wing and say, no, I'm going to make you better. Yeah. But it was a different world in the Never 1970s, happened. wasn't it? You weren't yeah. really... If you were good, you were good. If you weren't, that's life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I can remember like going, I mean, obviously going to the same school, going over to the um, fields to play. Yeah. Because I remember having the had an A and a B team. Um, and I was, uh, yeah, I was like a Z team, mate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of jealous of you lot and the, in the good key. I just kind of ached to be that person, but clearly wasn't. But there was a real social divide then. It was, it was mad school, mm, wasn't it? Mm. If you went in that kind of group, and straight away you kind of ostracised in were, all things. Yeah, where were you? So I didn't lack friends, but then you sort of gravitate to where you're accepted. Yeah. And I went into the nerds, so I became like the ultra geek. But that was good because it was me as well. So because I, I love me science fiction, passionate about right. Doctor Who. Okay. All the Star Wars was happening too. So yes, like I was on the yeah, front row yeah. when Star Wars came oh, out yeah. in the classic Allerton up there. Um, and then pop music. So I was like. Kind of eighties music. Yeah, well. I, I was, I was, I fit in, but I didn't fit in. Maybe where you'd aspire to fit in, I fitted in. But where I did fit in, I was made up, and I had like boss friends. So what was your like music, uh, peer group? Um, it was I like top of the pops was Pan's people, top of the pops. So it was that era, sort of yeah. end of the Osmonds era, start yeah. of like Queen, yeah, uh, David Bowie and all that, and then coming into like disco. So um, Grease, Saturday Night Fever was all like, I was seven, eight, nine when that was coming. I was massively into like disco. Right. I had all second-hand disco albums at home. Um, like Play That Funky Music by Wild Cherry, yes. even now, yeah. is a passionate song for me. I love that. And I think it's really underrated. <laughs> <laughs> Don't start. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I just love, so when I've gone out nights out and stuff because I'm renowned for organising nights out, it's always somewhere that plays a bit of retro disco. Right, that's that's, that's me, your thing. That's, that's me definitely. And then I loved all the eighties stuff too, but yeah. we're getting ahead of ourselves yeah, now. Yeah, aren't yeah, we? Yeah. So that was good, uh, but it, it's weird because it was the lads that kind of ostracised me from the uh, that sort of peer group of the footballers the and all yeah, that, yeah. and kind of dissed me. He's even the fans like he's not. You can't play. You can't like football. So then I got on dead well with the girls. I really did. And I never lacked. And the lads started to envy me as they yes, got older yeah, because yeah, yeah, I just yeah. naturally had loads of friends who were, who were, who were girls. And uh, it was always a really safe place for me with them. And we all got on really well. So I got a few envious glances in the playground sometimes. Yeah, you did, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then, did you go to, I don't know, I hesitate to say where you went next. I was going to guess, but I'll let you say. Senior school. Oh, it was St. Margaret's. It yeah. was a bit iffy, though, because my mum was determined it would be St. Margaret's. Right. And um, I remember she had to put three choices down. She put and St. She Margaret, well, St. Margaret's, well, St. Margaret's. Well, she could have done that, she would, but she refused. She's, like, really rebellious. She put St. Margaret's one, Quarry Bank. Oh, yeah. Two, and wouldn't put a third. And um, I know some really good friends of mine went to Shawfield, so I apologise now for any insult. But she said, I'm not putting a third because they'll make me put your fields and I don't want him to go there. So, you know, I work with Colin in Esther's yeah. and Colin went to Shawfield and he gets really upset when I say that. So sorry, Col, but <laughs> um, she wouldn't want me to go there. So um, anyway, we got the letter came through. Remember the morning the letter came through and it was St. Margaret's had got in. And she, my mum, I wasn't really bothered. Overjoyed. But my mum was made up because a, a good number of people from Sudley went to both. So I'd have been yeah. fine, whichever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And during all this time, is church a part of your life or your, oh, part of your family life? Yeah, 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 massively. Um, Mum and Dad were very much believers, um, although there's something with that with me, Dad, which I'd like to talk about, but I'll talk about it in a minute. Um, but they're both what we understand to be followers of Christ. Um, they believe that Christ died for their sins and they believe passionately in sending their kids to Sunday school. And it was a family day, so Sunday was we all went to church, we all went to Sunday school. And it was a little church in the Dingle, which a lot of people will remember, called Park Street Chapel. Yeah. It's not there no more. And mum and dad married there. They met there in the 1950s, married there in the 1960s, took the families there right the way through the 70s as well. And they'd always gone there the whole life. And my, <laughs> I can remember going very clearly, remember being a big fidgeter in Sunday morning and Sunday night. Uh, it was a real old school service. It was good. I didn't hate it, but it, it just went on. And I remember the ladies all wore hats. Um, and that's always in my head. They all sat there with hats on, all different colours, different styles. And I was fidgeting, particularly in the evening services. But I loved the kids' work. The kids' work was upstairs in this little tiny chapel. And my Sunday school teacher was Phil Robbo. Oh, wow, no way. <laughs> and what's mad is his Sunday school teacher in that, in that church was my mum and dad. Wow. So Bill and Doris Kidd were Phil and Paul, Pauline Robinson's Sunday school teachers, and they were my Sunday school teachers before Phil and Pauline got married. They were Mike, so they were Corton. Phil and Pauline were Corton. No way. And they were my Sunday school teachers. So Phil was like nuts. Well, he, I know he still is, but he just chased us around all yeah. the time, playing mad games and all that. It was like pretty much what goes on here now with yeah. our youth work. Yeah. I can see the roots of it back then. Yeah. So that was really good. And uh, you just. Yeah, I had a party the whole time. Sunday school trips, out on a double-decker bus, yeah. going to the Wirral and things like that, which felt like, wow. you know... How exotic. Away. Yeah. So that was all good. 
But the, and what always categorizes my church life as a child too, which is really sad, and it's a sad about thing about churches in general, is there was loads of fighting going on, loads of divisions in churches. So eventually, Dad had a fallen out with the pastor. He'd known him for years, and there was a problem, and they and they they, they fell out, and Mum and Dad left. So they went to Egbeth Methodist Church back in the late seventies, and we had about three or four years there. I went to Boys Brigade. Mm. Hated it, hated every minute of it because I wanted to stay in on a Tuesday night and watch the Bionic Man. But I had to, yeah, but I had to wear this weird uniform and go to the Boys Brigade. My brother loved it, but I lasted about two years and left there. But and that was that was a nice church. People were lovely. We still yeah. know people now from that time. But then this is the thing with my dad that changed. He had this real weird experience. Even as a kid, I can remember it. He'd had an issue with his temper. He'd always at times. People loved him. He was very sociable. He's a lovely fella. But he'd been an only child. His sister had died when he was young and he was spoiled a lot by his parents because they were grieving their daughter. And they he got away with murder. So he got his own way a lot. So as an adult, I think he struggled at times when he wasn't things weren't going his way. He'd get angry mm. and lose his rag. And when he lost his rag, it was horrible. You know, he wasn't violent, but it was just he well, was like angry. Shouty and... Yeah, he was just like nice to be around for for a day or two. Um, and then, but he was definitely a Christian, and I remember he, he went on holiday, and he was just an unhappy man. He wasn't happy with that side of his life. He wasn't happy with his anger and stuff. And he changed. He changed overnight. And as I've aged, and I've talked to him about it, particularly before he got ill, he says it was the Holy Spirit. He said he was reading a book called Prison to Praise, Watchman Nee. Um, a lot of people, I don't really know, but he was a Chinese um, evangelist missionary. Right. And he was reading this book about what the Holy Spirit can do in your life to, to change you, to really reveal the depths of God to you, to make you like Christ. And Dad says he, he felt the heavens open, and he just felt an outpouring of love, even though he was a believer already, such mm. as he'd never experienced in his life before. And I can tell you, even as a child, overnight, his anger pretty much went. There were still flashes of it in the years after that, but not like it was where you knew you had to kind of be careful and tiptoe around him. He became, on the whole, much more like you'd imagine Jesus was, like always sacrificial, selfless, looking after people, genuinely loving, prayerful, love going to church. So because he'd had this experience, with all due respect, Egbeth Methodist Church was no longer enough for him on, on a spiritual level. He wanted to sort of explore the god more mm. particularly maybe a spiritual side the holy spirit side so for this for this is quite intense for a 10 year old he took us to churches that were quite charismatic um which was a real you know eye-opener for mm. us as kids that's not what we were used to at all just on the worship side and everything it was it was gonna be crazy really i want to say that respectfully because i do respect that movement and i respect in lots of ways it's it's, it's authentic it's genuine and it's real i think there can be some dangers in it too. And I believe it, even as a child, there was a lot of stuff. I thought, is that real? Is that not real? You know, but um, it, we went there for about the next five or six years from sort of 10 years old through my teenage years. Wow. We were in one in Nor um, North Liverpool, quite close to Anfield called Merseyside Christian Fellowship. Um, it's still there now. Mm. It's called MCF. People mm. know it as MCF. I was baptized there. And we were the team that actually moved into that building and sort of renovated it. And as a kid, we used to go and help out and they built the baptistry. And So hang on, let's just rewind it okay. a little bit because we've, we've gone from like the early years, you, this experience that your dad had, now you've been baptised. You need to 
okay, fills in a little me, bit there yeah, about it's the your, other leap that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this again, I, I always gag in in life. It never feels like things are aimed at me, but I kind of pick up on them and I gag in. So I gagged in with the gospel. And what happened was there was one day in our front room and my younger brother was on my dad's knee and my dad was talking to my younger brother, Armagh. And I was on the couch and they must have thought I was having a kip or something. I was asleep. And my dad was talking to my brother about Jesus. And he was explaining who Jesus was in the most simple terms. And he said, Jesus is God's son and he came to this earth and he lived like you and I but with one purpose, because he wanted to take our punishment. And Mark, every time you mess up and you do something wrong and you upset me and your mum and you upset God, Jesus and God want to forgive you, And they, but there's a punishment involved as well for all the wrong things. So Jesus died on the cross and took your punishment so that if you believe in him, if you follow him, if you make a decision to like accept him in your heart as God and King and follow him, you'll be forgiven. And one day, when this life is over, you'll be with him forever. And he's beautiful. And it was that kind of simple. And I'm listening there, like gagging in, thinking he's not talking to me, but that Jesus, even though I'd heard of him and I knew about him through Sunday school, I can't remember him ever being explained so simply and profoundly and beautifully. And I think that's what it was. I picked up on the beauty of Jesus, that he chose to do what he did because he wants to take our punishment away. But then our choice is, do we accept that or do we not? And like a flash lying there on the couch, I'm like, Lord Jesus, I believe that you did that for me and I want I want you to be my God. I'm all with you then. Seven. That was the beauty of it. I got a sense then of the joy of it's right that you get punished when you mess up, but the joy of someone else taking your punishment away for a seven-year-old was yeah. wonderful. Yeah. And and boss and and that moment, I, no one can ever say to me, "Yeah, but you were seven And that no, it happened. I was seven, and I absolutely believed seven. it. It happened. So yeah, and and I but I believed it, and it's never left me. <clears throat> and as we'll talk, I'm sure I've meandered through my life, but that sense of a commitment that I made to God then but more so he made back to me I knew that couldn't change and I'm glad that happened when I was seven because there's a lot that's gone on since then that I think if I hadn't had that faith then I might have wondered what the heck was going on yeah um but that stood me in very good stead it's also given me a huge compassion I won't go into this now it's also given me a huge compassion for people now who don't feel they've got a place in the church because they don't know God, um, but they battle the same things that I do in life. And I always feel really privileged that I had that revelation of God as a seven-year-old that they didn't have. And I'm thinking, if I didn't have that revelation because I've battled the same things as them, would I be welcomed in church now? And it upsets me that I don't think I always would be welcome in church now. So that's quite key. Because um, I knew even at seven years old, I was different. I was being ostracised by boys. I had loads of mates who were girls. I knew I was, there was something different going on with me. And, and I couldn't make sense of it for a long time, but that was quite key that I came to faith in God then. And I knew then that God loved me. Okay. 
So we fast forward again now to yeah. like little interlude there. Yeah. And then fast forward to getting baptized. You go into these few different churches. Yeah. Um, so after MCF. Uh, well, it, it was weird. There was another falling out. Um, I, it was a bit too young to know why. I was about 13. It, it, it was more of the organisation behind the movement that we were in. Dad dad wasn't happy. A few others weren't happy. So they broke away and formed a home church in Norris Green. And this was sort of like 84, 83, 84. And it was boss because there's families that we were friends with, that we grew yeah. up with. Um, we used to go on holiday with them. It was really close. It was, But because they were, they were like so focused on um, adult ministry, the youth ministry, not deliberately, but kind of started to peter out a bit. So we'd often sneak away and go and play on the Commodore 64 (laughs) (laughs) upstairs, which was great because you're in church on Sunday morning. Yeah, and you're playing Hungry Horace upstairs. It's like (laughs) Manic Minor and all that. So I didn't hate that, but looking back on it now, I could see why kids started to drift away and Mm. not come because there was nothing... And, and 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 I don't want to sound like I'm blaming people because I love those people, but it was tough to stay focused in a in a spiritual sense. Plus, at the same time, I got quite uh, focused on um, end times scripture, and I got quite obsessed with that. I was reading loads of strange books about the end of the world, and that wasn't good either. And I think a good teaching system for me would have kept me maybe away from focusing on that and kept me more into growing as a Christian. Mm. So um, by the time up the mid to late 80s came 86 87 88 i was doing my o levels and a levels i was focusing on them so i used that as a reason not to go but a lot of my peers were were, were not in church and i was found myself sitting in the front room with like middle-aged people you know it were all lovely but it it just the the pull wasn't there um and i was also not not the people i was meeting with but the church in general the world's opinion of the church was changing I think they were increasingly being seen as a bunch of pursed, lipped, pious people who were always telling you what's bad about what you're doing. And it didn't feel like there were very, there was much to celebrate and there was much reason to rejoice about going to church. So I kind of was feeling a bit embarrassed. I wasn't embarrassed of the Lord. I was, if anyone wanted to talk to me about Jesus, I'd always speak, you know, well of him in the sense that I'd be, clear about what he who he was and what he did and why he's beautiful but christians i was not didn't want to be lumped in with them as much yeah, yeah. um and that was that was a negative association yeah and they just didn't feel relevant to lots of things and plus i you know i could see the joy in life i could see the joy in i knew christians who were kind of saying you mustn't listen to pop music and they do me head in because there's joy and beauty and love pop music some of the best christians are also made pop music you know it's just silly to be so polarized Mm. that's the word i was starting to pick up even back then Mm. 30 odd years ago of the polarization which dismissed anything that wasn't overtly christian when god's bigger than that and i hated that so there was a pull away from being a church attender and i just chose to stop going in 88 it's weird because you think back then in 88 living in Egbeth I'd have known of Bridge Chapel I'd heard of Bridge Chapel but I'd never been and knowing now the people like yourself who were in Bridge then 
was Bosch Youth Work going on? It would have been brilliant for me, mm. but for some reason, just never entered never my head happened. to go, never went as a family and just didn't come down the road. <laughs> yeah. we'll get, catch the bus down. So we'll maybe come on a little in a bit to how you did eventually yeah, yeah. coming to be here, but yeah. let's talk about, you know, post-school now. So you do your A-levels, what happens next? I never knew what I wanted to do. Well, sorry, I'm, I'm assuming you did A-levels. That, yeah, yeah, I did. I, um, can I boast a little bit? I love my O-levels. I really enjoyed them. I threw my heart and soul into working for my O-levels and I got 10. And I was made up. The grades weren't brilliant. I never got any A's, but yeah. I got four B's and five, six C's. Yeah. So I was made up with that. And I think I kind of reveled in that too much because I was, <laughs> my A-levels weren't the same. But I loved sixth form because St. Margaret's sixth form was the first time it got integrated again. So girls came back over. Right. And again, it was a different dynamic going on. I'd really missed the girls. And it wasn't I'd miss them because I wanted to like cop off with them and not like that. I missed them because they were my mates. I haven't heard that expression for so long. <laughs> cop off. <Yeah. laughs> but I'd miss them because I just got on so well with them. And uh, it, and as soon as they came back, it was brilliant. And sixth form. And of course, the lads are growing up then. Because I still had that slight ostracising, even at St. Margaret's, of you're rubbish at sport. Yeah. You know, you're really rubbish at sport. So they thought, we're not going to talk to you. You're a nerd, you're a geek, you're whatever. And that was fine. I got over that by then. But that's what had happened. But when the girls came back, because I got on so well with the girls, I kind of became cool with the sports lads too, because they wanted yeah. to get to the girls through me. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Which was fine, that worked too. And so sixth form was a ball. It was an absolute party. The common room, the music was on. Yeah. It was great. Um, and I did my A-levels. I, I knew I wasn't going to uni. I knew, uh, for me, education, post me sort of A-levels, I knew I'd psychologically had enough of studying. So I wasn't going to entertain that. So I didn't work as hard at my A-levels. And I did economics, I did English Lit, and I did history and general studies. Yeah. And I passed three and I failed one. Guess which one I failed? Don't tell me you failed general studies. I failed general oh, studies. No. I got an N. <laughs> no no grade well, is that? I thought that meant nearly. Yeah, no, no grade attained, <laughs> doesn't it, isn't it? So I imagine failing general studies, but I did, yeah. and I just scraped the others. But I wasn't too upset, but I just didn't. It was like a bit of a... When I thought about life post-sixth form, I didn't have a clue how it would look because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Right, so what did you do? I just started applying for jobs and watch Neighbours every day because <laughs> I love Kylie Minogue. So I used to just watch Neighbours twice a day and apply for loads of jobs. And the common, the, the common sense work it seemed to go into was the civil service. Because everyone's saying, oh, it's a good pension and it's a stable employment yeah, and blah, yeah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, 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 and you can always leave it if you need to. And, and mum and dad just wanted me to have a steady job, yeah. you know. Uh, so I wrote off and got an interview at the same sort of time. For, this is going to sound so glamorous. The Inland Revenue and Liverpool County Court. Right, can I just say that doesn't sound glamorous? <laughs> <laughs> well, not Are, you anyway. sure? <laughs> yeah. Are you sure? Are you sure? And the in fact, it's like the opposite. Well, the interviews were so funny and typically me. So the interview for the Inland Revenue was in the Triad building in Bootle, which is like yeah. the tallest building there. And at the time, it's like, wow, it's really big, this building. So it gets to the end of the interview and I knew it had gone well. I don't want to sound arrogant, but I knew it had gone well. And it's that question, which is like, so David, is there anything you want to ask us? And I'd, I had a million questions to ask them about the Inland Revenue yeah, yeah. to impress them. Yeah, yeah. And you know what I asked them? Give me you're on the top floor of the triad. Oh, why is it? Yeah. <laughs> I said, how tall is this building? 
I just, as you're saying it, you think, what am I saying? How tall is this building? There's this like tumbleweed moment, and they yeah. went, we don't know. We've just hired the room for the for the interview. So, but weirdly, they offered me the job, which okay. is like, they must have been so desperate. made an impression. Yeah. And the courts one went better than that. But at the end of it, when they said, "Tell," well, sorry, at the start of it, when they said, tell us about your hobbies, I couldn't think of anything. So I said, I'm, I'm in the Carly Minogue fan club, <laughs> which I was, which is really sad. I was 18 and I was in the Carly Minogue fan club. So um, they just laughed and it, it was good. That was an icebreaker and I calmed right down then. But you were like, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's just serious. Oh, yeah. They, they're just like, yeah, I'm genuinely, I'm in the family. Don't laugh. It's not, like, not a joke I am. But, uh, yeah, they both offered me the job and it's the, the court snipped in there first because they offered me a six-week six casual position um, and the Yellow Revenue hadn't offered me anything, so I went with the courts. But it was only for six weeks. This is in the summer of 89. Mm. It was a month after Hillsborough. 15th of May, 89, I started. And um, I was about two weeks into that when the Yellow Revenue rang me and said, will you come to us? And the court said, don't because we'll offer you a permanent post so I, because I'd, i was in the courts by then i stayed and i was there for 24 years so oh. um yeah so what's what's life looking like um as a follower of jesus at this time or in no yeah you know 24 years we're not going to talk about everything but just give us a kind of overview of your kind of your christian journey from what getting a bit cheesed off with church whatever deciding you're not going to go anymore yeah going into the working world you know getting a job what's going on in your christian experience um i think as i got into my 20s i was 18 when i started in the courts um i think if you to ask people who knew me for the first sort of 12 or 13 years of being there so all through my 20s they'd always say i was like i don't know a, a good man um, and on the rare occasions, because it was like an open plan office with like 200 people in it, and I knew everybody, and you got moved around a lot, and you got to know each other really well, and it's civil service, so you just gab. Mm. <laughs> you, you, you do your work, but you have conversations, and politics and religion, you just knew. At some point, they come up, and it always got contentious. And I think um, I was never one to seek out those conversations, but I kind of did talk about God as if he was real and I always talked about what Jesus did for everybody and I tried to make him inclusive and it was weird I always hated those moments not because I didn't like talking about them because the the table always went really quiet <laughs> and I hated that and your voice always sounds really like high-pitched and and loud and you're like oh no they're all gone quiet and it's like and you can see they're listening but they're uncomfortable and I always thought, why does people get uncomfortable when you talk about God? And so I tried, I tried, I don't know, I feel guilty saying I avoided those conversations, but I just didn't like how that made them feel and made me feel. Mm-hmm. I thought it's got to be a more natural way of doing this. Yeah. Um, it was better one-to-one. Sometimes on a night out after a few drinks, people would start maybe getting aggressive about God and you could have a much more open and honest conversation then. But I found that I floundered a bit because when you got past the actual gospel message of what Christ did on the cross for people, I wasn't really able to talk with any great depth about him or about what his love looks like beyond that or maybe give a reason for what people were going through in their lives. 
and I felt immature in my faith. And I was immature in my faith because I wasn't really taught from my teenage years onwards and I wasn't seeking teaching. So I didn't doubt my faith. I wasn't. And the mad thing as well, people might think, well, he wasn't in church. He was out. And I was out in town quite a lot. But I was kind of, if Christians could see what I was getting up to, I was kind of behaving myself as well in their eyes. You know, mm. We all put like our own limits on sin, don't we? But I was, I was, I was probably drinking a bit too much at times, but that was about it. You know, I wasn't really misbehaving and um, there was no relationships going on. And I was, I was, I was wrestling with stuff in my own life and I hadn't worked it through yet. And I was pushing it down. I was definitely pushing it down. There was stuff going on in me, which I would not address or deal with. And I just, there was nothing sparing me to do that either. Life was comfortable. There was a salary coming in. I was, I'd be season ticket for Liverpool. My social life was fantastic. I had my music, I was cinema concerts, holidays. It was just... Carly Minogue fan club. Carly Minogue. She did a hit of barren years by now in the <laughs> 90s. She wasn't doing quite so well, but she had a massive comeback. So it was... It was a happy time. It's weird, isn't it? I was doing my own thing. I wasn't doing my own thing maybe in a terrible sense, but I, and I, I definitely wasn't following Christ in a daily committed deep way. But it was a peaceful time. I wasn't, but you weren't going to church? Not at, at all, no. I had a couple of visits, like um, my sister Ruth, she's married by now, with, uh, and she, I had three nieces, and as they were dedicated in her church, I'd go for the day yeah, to yeah, those sorts yeah. of services. and. Although I quite enjoyed those days, I always thought, oh, thank God I'm going to come here every week. Because by now, again, because the world was changing so much and Christianity, Christians were getting viewed in a different way. And I was finding it harder maybe to defend Christians because my own experience of Christians when I met with them, it was very rarely, how are you, David? How's it going? This is quite telling. Nobody really from the churches I had attended were checking up on me or come after me and said, are you okay? Mm. And when I did meet up with Christians, like, kind of, you should be in church. And, and you know, it, it was all a bit kind of cold. And, yeah, it was, it, it, I didn't feel like I was missing out. Yeah, yeah. So talk to us then how you ended up going from that situation to being at Bridge and when, when that happened. When you first started coming to Bridge, yeah, and and how that came about from you know, yeah, enjoying life, fine, no pressure. It, well, I'll, it it's gonna it it it's <laughs> I'm laughing because it's really really shallow, but a lot of things that happen in my life tend to be or they come from shallow starts. Um, I've always loved New York City. Like as a kid, I saw King Kong when I was like six, the old black and white one, and I was just transfixed by it. And the ending, whilst being really, really sad, I just wanted to go to the Empire State Building. And then every time I saw the film and New York was in it, it just like, and the music that came, the disco music that came out of New York and just the films that were filmed there. And I just wanted to go to New York. And it's weird, even though I'd been abroad, I'd never flown. <laughs> and I was good friends with a lad in work 
and I was good friends with his wife. And she was turning 30 in the year 2000, and so was I. So she'd said to me, listen, let's really make a moment of our 30th birthdays. Why don't you and him, my husband, go to New York and I'll go to the Med, to like some Greek island with my mates and we'll just have our life moments there because you've always wanted to do this and I've always wanted to do this. So that was it. So we booked for for St. Patrick's Day 2000. We had five days in New York City and I was dead nervous but dead excited but I was dead nervous because I'd never flown. (laughs) I was nearly 30. And I'd never flown, so I was like, wow. So mum and dad had kind of encouraged me to come to church throughout the 90s and always got a flat no. I'm not going to make you happy. If I'm going to church, I'm going because I want to go. So they kind of not asked me anymore, but they'd always been praying for me. I know they'd always prayed for me. And um, they were coming to Bridge. They'd been at Bridge for about three years by now. I'm really settled and they loved it. I, could, I was thankful that they'd found a church they'd really loved and I were at peace with because there'd been a lot of different churches. But because I was flying for the first time on the following Wednesday and because I knew I wasn't exactly talking to God much anymore, I thought if I go to bridge with them on the Sunday, <laughs> Sunday morning, it's kind of a little olive branch to God saying, please don't let the plane crash. Keep me safe. Yeah, please bring me there and back. But in some ways, that's quite nice because it shows you that I knew my life was in his hands. But I'm thinking, looking back now, I'm thinking, how pathetic are you, David? So anyway, I rock open bridge on this in this school on a Sunday morning, going in, thinking, oh, this is awful. I just don't really want to be here. And uh, I remember it was quite a profound day for the people at bridge because there was a bit of major bereavement that weekend, quite a shock bereavement. And I got a sense as soon as I walked in that, oh gosh, everyone's really shocked here. <laughs> and it was chocker. I mean, that's the first thing I thought, wow, this place is booming. And I just sat there a bit kind of overwhelmed, partly because of the size and the volume of people and the number of people who knew mum and dad and were like, talk to mum and dad. But also the sadness in the room. I remember it being a really sober, kind of somber um, service. And then uh, that stayed with me actually. And then when we came out, mum and dad, as parents do, and Bill saying goodbye at the door. I think I'd met him once before, and they knew him really well, because they knew him when he was a kid back in the Dingle, so mm-hmm. this is our David sort of thing, and I'm shaking his hand, and they went, he's going to New York, and all this, and I'm thinking, oh man, he's going to suss it when he comes, because I'm scared, <laughs> I'm scared of flying. But, and then and then we came home, but it, and it, it, I was glad that I came, but it stayed with me, that real family sense of loss in the church. I thought, I'd, as much as the church had been in previously, everyone loved each other. There was a deep sense of loss in the church that morning. So that was quite profound for me. And then I went to New York on the Wednesday. And I'm not lying to you, it was the holiday of my dreams. It was just, it lived up to my expectations and transcended them. I get quite homesick when I'm away. I don't like being away from Liverpool for too long, but I didn't want to come home from New York. Right. It was just like being on the world's biggest film set. Yeah. People say there's a buzz about the place and it's a bit of a cliche. It's true about New York City. There's an energy and there's a, I don't know, I just, I'd lived there. It was just amazing. Um, and although I'd wanted to go for the Empire State Building and, and, and I went up there twice, I went up there for the day view and for the night view and I've got videos and photographs. The most profound moment came on day two. We got up early and thought, right, it's, 
there's like millions of Irish people and Celtic fans because it's St Patrick's Day week. It's St Patrick's Week in New York, and there's going to be a parade. So they were all in central Manhattan. So me and my mate um, went down to the, the 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 port side and went up to the World Trade Center to the Twin Towers, and it was about nine ish in the morning. They just opened. And we went, and I've got a video now, I've kept it, it's on, I transferred it to digital and all that, so I can always keep it. And there's a video of me at the base of the World Trade Center looking up and panning up, and then we go up to the roof, and there's a video of me on the roof and loads of photographs on the roof with the other tower behind me. Mm. And I was gabbing to all the security guards. I was just constantly excited because I'm in New York. And then just below the roof of the World Trade Center, there was a gift shop, and there was a, a lady there, and she was really good. She could see me, like, browsing, looking for a present for my sister, for our Debbie. And Debbie collected little charm bracelets from places around the planet, and I wanted a little New York one to take back for her. And I couldn't pick, and she was coming over and talking to me as they do, and she was ultra-friendly, as most American people who work in gift shops are. And she helped me pick one out, a little Statue of Liberty one. And I was talking to her about a job and stuff, and she was really nice. And then we just came back, and that was it. And uh, the rest of the holiday was brilliant. Um, and we came home. Probably one more before we get off New York, and just say one more thing about it. I found on St. Patrick's Day, we went to a bar on 8th Avenue, and it was really late, and they were all really, really drunk. And there was a jukebox, and I said to me mate, in this chocker bar full of Celtic fans, and me and him are Liverpool fans, I said to me mate, I'm going to go and put You Never Walk Alone on the jukebox because I'd looked and it was there, Jerry Marsden, Jerry and the Pacemakers, You Never Walk Alone. Mm. And as I said this to me mate who was stood in front of me, I got a tap on the shoulder and this fella said to me in the broadest Scouse accent, don't, because if you do, there'll be bottles flying in here. And he was never Tonian. <laughs> I'd said that and right next to probably the only Evertonian in the city. In it found me. In New York, so I, I didn't put you never no. walk alone on in the bar that night, but that holiday was amazing. And in a spiritual sense, I think I was the furthest away from God at that moment in my life because I was so happy. I was, I, you know, even by flying to New York and in this foreign city, you know, I felt so confident. I felt so. I just felt like I, I didn't need anything really. The world was my oyster. I could do this every year. You know what I mean? I didn't need anything. And what a beautiful place. And I just, not that I was ever in denial of my faith. That, that wasn't what I'm, that's not what I'm saying. It was more that I didn't see the need for anything else other than what I wanted to do. And I came back and I was a different person when I came back. I know I was. I was kind of just more adventurous. I just wanted to get out and explore a bit more. Um, Liverpool were doing really well in 2000 to 2001 it was the treble season so I went to all those finals I flew to Germany for the UEFA Cup final in the 12 months after it it was just a really brilliant time So you have this holiday of a lifetime, you come back, um, again, you're self-sufficient, I think might be a, yeah, a way to, a to way describe to it, yeah. you know, there's no need for anything else, but something must happen for you to to come 
back to bridge after that, like coming to like do a little deal, you know, <laughs> can you please get me safe to go to New York. <laughs> yeah, the shallow transaction. Yeah. yeah. Um, so something must happen that has an impact on you that makes you then come back to bridge. Yeah. In a, in, a, in for a different reason. Very much so, and it was an impact. I mean, you know, I can't claim this one for myself. Everyone was impacted by this, but September the eleventh, two thousand one, was a day that changed my life and millions of other if not the entire planet but it shook me um i was in work and my colleague in work was the lad i went to new york with so we were both in work and it was lunchtime on a tuesday and um it came over the radio that planes had flown in to the world trade center and we had a tv staff room tv staff room so like weirdly civil servants are really strange hardly anybody went but I raced down to the staff room yeah. and just stood there with my mouth open, absolutely traumatised by what I was watching on the telly. I like, stayed there for the whole thing. The only one towel was on fire at this point. And it was just, I felt sick. And it was shock, it was everything. And I just couldn't stop thinking about the people because I knew on the clock it was like that time of day, their time, sort of early morning, nine-ish, half nine, whatever. And I knew it would be open. I knew the staff would be in. And you could see from where the plane had hit it, they weren't going to get out. And then the other one went in. And it was just horrible. And it was just, you're like in this, what is happening? A bit like, I suppose now, it's like surreal. What's going on? And again, that night, there was a match at Anfield. It was a Champions League game. Liverpool were playing Boa Vista. So the lads I went to New York with, I went to his house for tea before the match. And then we went to the match. And Anfield was weird that night. There was this weird silence around the ground. And nobody could, it was just like everyone was in shock. Mm. But it wasn't just shock for me. I was angry. I was absolutely furious, and rather than it like ebbing away, it got angrier, and it was like a, a, a rage. And I'm not really an angry person, but this anger, and it was, I was angry at God. It was such an evil thing to happen. People wouldn't have got out of that building, and it was horrific. And I got a real sense of the evil behind a motive for doing it. So I didn't think I've ever had such a revelation of evil in the world and I was angry about it. Mm. I'm thinking, someone's chosen to do this. That's such a wicked thing to do. So the following, it's weird how Liverpool shaped my life. The following Saturday, there was a derby at Everton and I had tickets and there was, it was the Stephen Cheddard derby where he scores and runs down the, the Bullens Road with his hand over his ear and, there was a minute silence before that game and then straight after the derby I went to Wales for a week and with a family and I was on my own an awful lot that week just listening to music and getting and the anger wasn't going and all the papers were full of it and what the world was going to do in retaliation and what we're going to do they're going to do this going to do this but I couldn't get past my initial anger at just the evil of it never mind who, who was responsible and what reasons they were claiming it was more like the overall wickedness behind it and I was angry at God why did you allow that to happen? Why did you allow that wickedness to take so many lives? And I was walking along this beach one afternoon, and this is going to sound strange to people, but again, I'm a truthful man. I don't lie about this. I was walking along the beach, and in my head, I was talking to God, and I was saying to him, how could you allow that? How could that place was beautiful? You, show, you showed me that place. You showed me that vibrancy and the beauty of that place, and yet this thing happened and it was wrecked. That skyline was scarred. It was wrecked. How could you allow it? 
and he answered me. <laughs> and that sounds nuts, but he answered me. And no, it wasn't a big booming voice from the skies. But in the stillness of my mind and my heart, I got a response and it absolutely floored me. Couldn't believe it. I mean, I, I believed in him, so why would I be shocked by an answer? But he responded and he said, and I was even more shocked by what he said. I mean, the fact that he answered was shocking enough, but what he said, it was like, it's all very well, you being angry with me. It's like, how dare you? But you know, you know that I'm here. You've always known. Seven years old, you know, you know I'm here. You know I am not evil. And you know there is a better way for you and this world to live their life. But nobody in your life knows that from you, as in you're not showing anybody or telling anybody there is an alternative to that kind of an evil. There is a different way to live your life and to encourage others to live theirs. There is an opposite to the evil, and you know this, so how dare you be angry with me when there's nothing that you're doing in your life, which I've given you, by the way, I've given you a life, but there's nothing that you're doing to tell anybody about me. And I was gobsmacked, speechless. All that anger went because he was right. Mm. And I didn't have an answer to him. Didn't. And it was, it was well, it was life-changing because my life changed completely from then. And it was like, okay, so that's true. So what do I do now? And again, he wasn't asking for the world. It was like, follow me. But follow me in a way that others can see and know and understand through everything you do, that you're following me. Oh, I was fuming then. It wasn't the same kind of anger, but I was fuming because he was right and I knew I had no choice. I mean, I did have a choice. I could have chosen then to go, la, 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 I'm not. I'm going back to that freedom. But mm. I couldn't. I couldn't. He was right. And he has given me a life and you get one life. And I thought, he's right and, and I'm going to spend eternity with him because of what Christ did for me. So actually, for the rest of my days... I'm going to have to follow him. And I knew what it meant. And that's why I was so galled. It meant going back to church. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I really don't want to do mingle with a loads of Christians. And by this time, I kind of made sense as to really why I didn't want to do that. I didn't think ultimately if church people knew about me fully, they'd want me with them. I didn't think I'd get a welcome. I didn't think they'd want me in their midst. I think they'd have a problem with me. Well, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Bridge Podcast. If you've got comments, suggestions or questions for us, please feel free to send them in to podcast at bridgechapel.co.uk and we'll respond to all those emails and try and incorporate any suggestions into future shows. To get as many people as possible to hear this podcast, if you like and subscribe to it on your podcast provider, that'll really help. So thanks again. Hope you enjoyed this episode and look forward to you joining us next week on The Bridge Podcast. <laughs>